Well, thank you, Pastor Dave, and good morning to you all. It's great to be with you. Uh, I appreciate the introduction uh, because some of you may be sitting out there thinking, when did Sid Coop let himself go? Um, and uh, I, Dave, the first service, they laughed more. That was... Uh, Actually, at the first service, there was a couple over here looking at me and kind of smiling and waving like they knew me. And I think they thought I was Sid and I'd let myself go. Um, I am not an older, fatter Sid Coop. Uh, my name is Dennis, as Pastor Dave said. And it is my joy to be a part of uh, the BGC life with you guys. And whether you know you're part of it or not, you are. You're a part of 25 churches across Alberta that are bringing the gospel to their communities. And what a joy it is to be a part of that work together with you. One other preface before we get going. Um, everybody knows who has the hardest job in a church on a Sunday morning, right? It's the guy doing the slides back there. And that is Josiah today. Um, the guy in the first service during the sermon really blew it. Um, that was me. I was trying to click through it and I was lost the whole time. So I have asked Josiah to do it. So uh, in preparation for that, Josiah has my outline. He's going to try to keep up. Even if he doesn't, I'll guarantee you he will not do as bad a job as I did in the first service, and I won't be as flustered. So let's hear it for Josiah back there in advance. Well, it's a joy to be a part of Ellerslie Road Baptist Church as well as the BGCA, and it is a privilege to be a part of this church on a regular basis. Uh, I'm traveling a lot to different churches, but my family and I are, are settling in here. We've been coming for about a, a, you know, almost a year now. October, we started coming when I started my role. Prior to that, I was uh, pastoring in Leduc at Leduc Fellowship Church, where I pastored for 13 years, and a church that I was a part of for closer to 20 years. Now, coming here, one of the joys of being a part of a church like this is that a lot of times I get to go and speak, but I'm the guest speaker, I'm popping in, and they just want a little bit of a rah-rah for the BGCA and maybe fit in. I actually am preaching today at the gathering afterwards at 2.30 with a different message. So if I switch messages mid midstream, you'll know why. I've just got confused in my own head. But one thing I thought about as I was sitting there just waiting to come up as I sat next to Pastor Dave is I missed the joy of being a part of a team. That's one thing I knew I would miss. Um, I'm a part of a grander team. But to be a part of a church team and to sit there and to be a part of things with, with Colton and Dave and David and Russ and I can go on and Abby and Conrad, I, I'll miss somebody. Um, but I appreciate the team here and what a joy it is to work alongside them. And to be able to fit into this sermon series, this misquoted uh, series, God didn't say. And even thinking about that statement, you could read that different ways. God didn't say that. Or God didn't say that, did he? It's kind of the way that some people read passages of scripture. Now, a number of summers ago in our church in Leduc, for the summer series, we did a sermon series very similar to this. My associate and I, every summer, tried to find something that would be one-off so if people were vacationing, they wouldn't miss out on everything. We tried to do things that were lighter so they would take less preparation for the pastor during the week. And invariably, what would happen is we would pick this topic and then we would do these one-off sermons and they were always harder than some of the other stuff that we were going through because they just needed a lot of study. Last Sunday we were here and my wife said, oh, you're preaching next week. You're a part of this misquoted series. What verse are you or what passage are you speaking on? 
And I said, Matthew 18, 20. And she said, I knew it. I knew it. That's your pet peeve passage. And uh, I guess, is it right or okay to say that you have a pet peeve passage? But this passage is a pet peeve for me and was to Dustin, my associate in Leduc as well. We were amazed at how often people misquoted this passage, how often people missed the point. And we would go to conferences and we would go to, uh, you know, leadership gatherings and to hear quality leaders in the church misquote this. Broke my heart every time. And Dustin and I would look across the room at each other and we'd make this sour face at each other, not at the person necessarily, but in the fact that they missed the mark. Let me read to you chapter 18, verse 20 of Matthew. If you have your, your Bibles, you can open them, up, open them up there. But let me read this passage. This just this verse, and then we'll read the passage in a moment. So open your Bibles or turn them on to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to be looking at verses 15 to 20, but I just want to read verse 20 to you right now. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Now, I got to be careful because some of you may have misused this in your life sometime and said, oh, I've done it wrong. I've heard it so many different ways. Well, we can't pray unless we have two or three gathered. God's not going to listen to us. Jesus isn't there. We can't start worship till two or three gather. Then we can have a worship service. And I've actually heard that at a very small church one time when the pastor only had two or three people sitting out there and he jokingly said, well, I guess we can have worship now. We have at least three. Or people acknowledge this and say, no, now we can invite God's presence in to join us because we have two or three gathered in his name. Or even worse, people who truly feel that if they can gather two or three in the name of Christ, they can change the will of God, the plan of God, or at least the will or plan of their local church. I've had a few times where people came to me in my previous denominational role and said, well, pastor, we're not on the board of the church. We're not in leadership in any way, but we have prayed and we think our church is going in the wrong direction and it needs to change. But this is not what this passage is dealing with. To use it in such a manner as any of those things that I've just listed is a gross misunderstanding of a crucially important passage on a very critical topic within the church. The topic of conflict, but more importantly, conflict that comes because of sin. Last week, Pastor Dave or David, um, did a very great job of bringing us the word. And he reminded us in that passage that, or in that service that we need to consider the context of any scripture that we read. And as we read chapter 18, verse 20, we have to be reminded of the context of where this fits in. And first we start with the eternal purposes of God's ultimate plan. God's plan from before eternity, whatever that means. And then we come to the scriptures. We look at the, the whole of scripture and understand that this is God's love letter to us. That God is trying to love and to reconnect in deep and meaningful relationship with his creation. The way that he had created us to be involved with him. 
created in his image and now restored to what it looks like to be with him. And then we come to the gospels or the New Testament where we now have the breaking in of Christ through the incarnation. We have Jesus coming onto the scene and God now taking on bodily form, looking like us and, and suffering like us and understanding our world. And then those four gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have Matthew who writes primarily to a Jewish group of people and he's trying to under, help the people understand what this new kingdom under this new king of Jesus looks like. He's presenting Jesus as the king and as the kingdom of God as the kingdom of that king. Then in num numerous times throughout Matthew in different ways he brings light to that kingdom. He brings light to what it means to, to live in that, to walk in that, to be a member of that kingdom, to be a citizen of that kingdom. Matthew 5 through 7 are huge, uh, you know, three amazing chapters that speak about life in the kingdom. And that the kingdom is upside down. That the kingdom does not look like what we've seen before. And Jesus gives a lot of stuff from the Old Testament and says, you've heard it said that this, but I tell you this. He tells us that in the upside down kingdom, the first is last and the last is first. And those who, who do things differently are the ones who maybe are really part of that kingdom. He explains to us that there's a higher standard for the kingdom of God under the King Jesus Christ. And then in Matthew chapter 18 to 20, he's back in this series of kind of helping people understand what life in the kingdom looks like. Matthew 18, uh, the first part of this passage, he's talking about greatness in the kingdom. He who wants to be great will be least. And don't cause any little one to stumble. And then in our passage today, Matthew 18, 15 to 20, he's talking about dealing with conflict and sin and forgiveness and reconciliation in the kingdom. Matthew 19, uh, he's talking about morality in the kingdom. And then chapter 20, he's talking about serving in the kingdom. So we have to understand the context of this passage, the context of where it fits in. And this is not talking about what it will require of us to be able to start the worship service on Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. It's not telling us what we need to do to make sure that the, the, those praying can be heard. It's not telling us what we need to do to make sure that we don't have to worry about God's presence being with us or not. But he's talking about this idea of conflict that comes through sin and how do we address it in the kingdom I want to read to you the full passage here verses 15 to 20 once again Matthew 18 if your brother or sister sins go and point out their fault just between the two of you if they listen to you you have won them over but if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, 
Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Prior to my life as a pastor in Leduc, prior to coming here, I was a district associate regional minister for the Alberta Baptist Association of the North American Baptist. Before that, I was an associate pastor of a church in Portland, Oregon. And through those last 33, 34 years of ministry life, one thing I've come to realize is that conflict is always there. And you might say, well, that's a real, not a very brilliant thing to come figure out. We have human beings, we have conflict. But one thing I learned as a district person dealing with a lot of conflict is that conflict is one of those areas that we need to lean into. And yet, churches and believers, generally speaking, do not lean well into conflict and sin issues. Now, don't get me wrong. We talk a lot about sin. We confess together that sin is wrong, that needs to be repented, and it needs to be Forgiven, and we need to walk in a new relationship with our God through our Savior. But we don't like to deal with it. We'll talk about it, but we don't want to deal with it. Before I was the pastor of Leduc Fellowship Church, I was an elder in the church, and then I left for a couple years to go on a kind of a part-time assignment out at another church. And prior to my leaving, as an elder of the church, I was speaking one day, And I was speaking on this issue of sin. I presented a a sermon around one issue that was a hot issue in our society at the time and how everybody wanted to call it out as sin. And my whole point of my sermon was that we cannot call out that sin and not allow somebody to come through the door of our church because of that sin unless we deal with the sin of everybody in the sanctuary that morning that we're not dealing with. That in God's eyes, sin is sin, and it's not graded, it's not differentiated, it's sin. And at the end of the sermon, I said, we need to get real with this, folks. I said, so what's going to happen is, in a moment, up on the slide, I'm going to put every sin I can find in Scripture, one at a time, in alphabetical order. And when yours comes on the screen, please rise. Yeah, you laugh. Nobody was laughing in that room. There was moaning and groaning and heads dropping and shaking and no people were out the door. They were, it was amazing, the response. And then I said, folks, I'm not really gonna do that to you, but I am gonna put the list up and I want you to just look at it. I want you to wrestle with your sin and to understand that we can't keep people out of the church because of one sin unless we deal with all of them equally. Well, two years later, I come back as the pastor of the church. The first week I was there, somebody called me and said, can we have coffee? And I met him at Tim Hortons in Nisku. And he says, you remember that sermon you preached on sin? I said, yeah, I do. He said, I do too. I hated you that day. And he was serious. 
He said, I hated you that day. Because I knew adultery was going to be the first one up on the screen. And he began to confess an adulterous relationship that he had had outside of his marriage. And he confessed it to me. And over the last number of years, we've been, I've been helping this guy with his marriage. And he's still married. And they've gone through a lot of hard times. But we had to deal with it. Now, in all of this, we need to be reminded of the fact that Jesus, the king of the kingdom, says to us that you, me, and all of us in the kingdom of God, those who call themselves followers of Christ, and our relationships matter to him. He did not leave it to a haphazard thing. Well, we'll just conflict will come, sin will happen, and we'll try to figure this out. He said, no, I'm going to help you understand that this matters to me and therefore we're going to have a process to work through it. And in Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 15, Jesus, the king of the kingdom, walks through three steps. And then after that, he gives us two promises of how we can deal with conflict that arises because of sin. I want to look at this process. I want to look at this and take it step by step, talk about it very quickly. A lot of you know this, but I want you to know it in light of where two or three are gathered. In my name, there am I. The first step is this. The person who is offended must go to the person offending who may not even realize a wrong has been done and talk about the problem. We find that in 1815. If your brother or sister... And let me define that for you in, in the original. Most likely, if a fellow believer, another Christian, sins, and some of your versions of your Bible may say sins against you, that, that's an okay statement, but it really is just sins. Go and point out their fault. Just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. So the first step is to go to them one-on-one. -on -one. Not to make a big deal about it, not to blow it up, not to go to everybody with it, but to go one-on-one. -on -one. And before you even do that, I encourage you to do some self-examination. Look at your own heart. Go to Galatians 5, 22 and 23. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Are you walking in the fruit of the Spirit before you go and point out the plank in another brother's eye? It's essential that we take the initiative and go. Now, we don't go griping and gossiping first and then go to the person. We go right to the person. We keep it small. We as Christians don't gripe and we don't grumble, do we? We don't gossip. We have prayer requests. That's how we do it. Well, you heard what the brother or sister is doing, right? Fill in the name. They're doing this. We need to pray. Let me tell you how bad they did this. We really need to pray. But don't gripe and gossip. Just go to them. Deal with them. Don't speak to everybody else about it. Speak to them. One thing I've noticed in ministry life, and it's true of all life, is that people will quite often go behind your back and over your head, but they rarely come to your face. 
go to them. For what? Not every sin. You can't go to people for every sin in their life. It just doesn't, it just, you wouldn't have time in the day to do that for all your friends, all the people you're connected with. But for the things that have maybe changed how you view them. If all of a sudden you know there's sin in a brother or sister's life and you can't have fellowship with them because of that, you can't respect them, you think there's damage being done to them long-term or to their family, you need to address these things. Take it to them. Where there are people, there is conflict. This is not a preference issue. This is not a, I don't like your personality. You don't get to go to those people for these things in this way. You go for sin that is causing conflict or sin that is tearing a person down or is ruining their testimony or their life. You pick it very carefully. In scripture, we're told to be, bear with one another and to go in long suffering to our brothers and sisters. To bear means sometimes that we just walk life with them as they're trying to figure out their discipleship in Christ. As they're trying to figure out their, their, their life and trying to confess that sin. Sometimes it takes longer. Does anybody know what the word long suffering means? It means suffer long. Um, sometimes with some of our brothers and sisters, we suffer long through things. But some things we must address. Once again, this is not about preference or personality. It's not because somebody disliked something on Facebook or disagreed with you on Facebook. You don't get to go with them for that reason. You have two options, to bear with them and suffer long or to address the issue one-on-one. And you have to decide, and there are good reasons to decide each one, but if you are going to bear with them and suffer long, then you have to let it drop. Forget about it. Let it go. Don't continue to ask people for prayer requests or gossip about it or gripe about it. Let it go and love them. Pray for them. Get through this. Then it says, if they listen to you or hear you, you have won them over. Doesn't mean that they've changed their mind. Doesn't mean they've confessed necessarily, but they hear you. They understand that there's a problem and they're willing to talk with you about it. You have won your brother over because you have them on the road to healing and to restoring that relationship with you and with God or with others if needed. But also you've won them over because you have not berated them in front of the community of faith or in front of their family. You've done so quietly and privately and you've cared for them. That's the first step. The second step says, if the offender does not respond, the offended one is to take one or two others to be witnesses of the confrontation and to help determine who is right. So that's verse 16. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So when do we do this? How long is enough? How long have we suffered long enough? or suffered longly enough with them. We don't know. It doesn't say. It doesn't say one day, one week, one month, one year. It doesn't say five tries, 10 tries, 20 tries. But at some point, if they continue to not hear what you're saying and understand that there's a problem, you are told to take one or two witnesses with you. Now the community is getting involved. The circle's getting bigger. 
Deuteronomy verses nine, verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 15 says this, one witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I don't doubt that Jesus is using this because his hearers would understand it, but I do not believe that it's always that he meant it exactly as it was told in Deuteronomy. This is talking about a court system. It's talking about very formal accusations. And I think he was reminding us that we need more than one person to testify. But that it goes deeper in this upside down kingdom that the whole point is wholeness, completion, restoration, reconciliation. And he's saying you need more than just one. The question is, is, are these people witnesses to the sin? And I would say probably not, because if they were, it would already be public. But you're inviting them in to be witnesses to the process. You're inviting them in to see how you do, to listen unpartially to both sides. I believe that we're being told to invite somebody in who can be fair, to make sure the right thing is done. Proverbs 18, 17 says this, I love this verse. In a lawsuit, the first to speak seems right until someone comes forward and cross-examines. Anytime we think there's a problem with somebody else, a sin in their life or conflict with them because of sin and we go to them, we're convinced that they are wrong. And when we invite two or three others in, we are opening the door to the fact that maybe we're wrong. Or maybe we don't have it all down the way it's supposed to be. Hmm. Scary bringing somebody else into it. So a few things when it comes to this. Ask people before you tell them what the problem is and you want to invite them in as a witness, don't tell them what the problem is and who the brother or sister is. Just ask them if they'd be willing to be involved in this process. If they say no, move on and ask somebody else. Don't tell them, well, it was this person or it was that person. Just move on. Find somebody else. Don't, once again, say the sin. Don't say the name. Just find somebody that's willing to walk in the process. And this is a crucial point. Find someone who loves both parties. Don't look for somebody that's on your side. This is the wrong way to do it. Hey, I have a problem with Jim. And this is the problem. This is what he did. He sinned this way and it's, he sinned against me and I got to confront him and he's not listening to me. I want you to go with me. You, you, you understand my side, right? You're on my side. Good, good. Then I want you to come with me. That's not how it works. Pick impartial people that love both parties. Don't pick people that'll take your side. Pick godly people who can handle the process that they're working through and be open to whatever their finding is. Are you open to them coming back and saying, no, Dennis, you're the problem or you're a big part of the problem or you're at least half the problem, if not three quarters of the problem? Are you going to listen to their point. The third point is, the third step here, is if the offender still does not respond, assuming he or she is truly in the wrong, 
the matter is to be brought before the whole church for a decision. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Take it to the ecclesia, the assembly, the community of faith, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. You bring it to that group. And you don't just write them off. You don't just cast them out. You plead with them again to listen. And it says that they refuse to listen. If they say, you know what, I don't care what that person said. I don't care what the witnesses said. I don't care what you as the church say. And, I, and once again, I don't think this is bringing everybody up on the stage every Sunday and saying these are the people the church has to deal with discipline. I believe this starts with the leadership of the church trying to plead with them to come back. But if they say, we don't care what the leadership says. We don't care what the church says. We don't care what the Bible says. We don't care what God says. It says to just put them out. Treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. We're not casting them off as much as they have cast themselves out of the faith community. They have said, we don't care what you think. They have made that decision. We need to make that decision clear and known. It says you treat them as a pagan or a tax collector. That's such a harsh word, pagan. What does a pagan mean? It means an unbeliever, somebody that doesn't follow the ways of Christ. Now, are we judging their character? Are we judging their, their salvation? No, not their salvation. We don't know what's in their heart between them and God. But we're saying that they live as if they don't believe these things. So that's what a pagan is. Do you know what a tax collector is? It's a really bad pagan is what a tax collector is. And that's kind of the way they saw it as a pagan or worse, a tax collector. Somebody that comes and you know, works with the enemy and is traded on us and is working with the government. We're to treat them like that. A number of commentaries. I read this, this last couple of weeks said very clearly, um, this person is to be cast out and they are gone. We do not associate with them. We do not talk to them. We don't invite them to anything. We don't go to their weddings. We don't go to their, their baby showers or whatever. I honestly don't think that's the heart of Christ here. Because all through the gospel, Jesus is saying, I love that person outside the body of Christ. I love the person outside the church and I love them enough that I will constantly bring the gospel to them. Now, while we have to cut ties in some ways and these people will not be involved in the work of the family and some of the, the business of the family of the church and, and some of the ministry in different ways, we are not shunning them. But we are saying that there is a deliberate work that needs to be done in their heart before we can bring them back in to the fold. We pray for them. We present the gospel to them. We tell them that we're sad, that our heart is broken, that we want them to be restored. But until that restoration happens, certain things can't happen. So we go about the business of caring for them and reaching out to them, but their place in the family has changed. It has fundamentally changed. Well, after we have this first, 
first part of three steps, go to them one-on-one, take two or three witnesses, take them before the church, treat them as the pagan or the tax collector if they do not repent and turn. We now have in the ending here just two simple, kind of really maybe three promises that God gives or Christ gives. The first one is that Jesus promises God's guidance and authority when we follow his lead in a united attempt at restoration. That Jesus promises God's guidance and his authority when we follow his lead in a united attempt at restoration. When we do the things that Jesus has told us to do in a godly fashion, trying to restore the brother or sister to the community of faith and to be a part of the family, then we are given his guidance in that process, which we've just received, but we're also given his authority. Verse 18 says, truly, I tell you, and this is Jesus saying, here, listen, really listen to this. Truly, I tell you, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And that's a, we could spend weeks just going through that passage. Some have believed this to say that, well, whatever we decide, then God will have to honor. I don't see it that way. I read it more as whatever we bind on earth has already been bound in heaven and whatever we loose on earth has already been loosed in heaven. What God permits, we permit. What God forbids, we forbid. And that's the kind of authority that he's giving to us here. It's not that we are creating it, but we are watching his, we're looking at his word, we're listening to him, we're interacting with him, and we understand, we understand what he sees as right and wrong. And that is the standard by which we hold people accountable. Now, some would disagree with me on that and see it different ways, and I don't have time to go into it, but I believe that the authority of God is there with us. If we agree with Jesus about in the importance of fellowship and the need for sin to be repented and dealt with and the horror that sin causes in our life, that need to re- restore and reconcile people, then he'll back up our decision in heaven because it's based on his standards, not ours. Then he says again, I truly say, I truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my father in heaven. And this is that passage we always tie to to prayer that we pray because two or three of us have gathered and we believe this. Well, if we're following the process and we're basing it on God's standard, not our own, then when we gather together, two or three of us, and we agree that we're doing it by God's standard, then he will listen to our prayers. He'll give us his covering. Now the sad part is it doesn't mean that the person always turns, always repents, always comes back, always confesses. We cannot predict that. But we know that we're walking with the guidance and the authority of God. And then finally... Last one here is that Jesus promises his own loving presence when we follow his will in such a situation. And we finally get to the verse we started with. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. God 
says your relationships matter, that in the kingdom of God, that we have to deal with sin. We have to make sure that broken relationships are restored, that everything is reconciled and made correct. And Jesus is the king of the kingdom. And if, if, if that is the standard of the kingdom and the king is supporting it and telling us how to do it, well, do you not think that he would want to be involved in this? Do you not think his presence would be there? We don't have to beg him to come. He's there because it means more to him than it does to us. It means something to you and me, but it means more to him because peace in the kingdom, dealing with sin, reconciliation, all those things bring fruit to the kingdom of God and ultimately bring glory to God himself. So why would he not be involved? Why would he not want to be there? So quickly in closing here, how can we embrace conflict? How can we lean into it for the good of God's kingdom and the good of fruit for the kingdom and bringing glory to him? Just a couple quick things. I don't have those on the slide, but don't ignore it, confront it. In a loving and as publicly as possible manner. Don't exaggerate it, solve it as quietly as possible. Don't abandon conflict, pursue it to a godly outcome. Once again, there's a godly outcome beyond just resolution. It is called fruit and glory to God. Don't always go it alone as needed and as prescribed. Take others with you. Remember the guidance and authority given by God in this whole process. And remember that when you do this according to his will, the very presence of Christ, the king of the kingdom is with you. Let's pray. Father, I come before you today. And I humbly confess that, Lord, I don't know um, how to do this right. And Lord, I've probably blown it more than I've gotten it even close to right. But for my brothers and sisters gathered here today, I just pray for all of us that we would just seek your face, seek your guidance, Lord, that we would not do things that, would be according to our, our will or in accordance to what we would desire our authority to be, but that we would do it through your guidance, with your authority, with your presence, and to the ultimate end of you being glorified. And in that, we humbly pray in your name. Amen.